You're listening to Trucking Questions from the Audio Road with Kevin Rutherford. This is the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. You can ask questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, tax, technology, or anything else about the business of trucking. Here we go. Let's head on down the audio road. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. Today is the power hour. We take your calls and answer your questions about everything maintenance. I've got the guys here from Pittsburgh Power helping me out. Today it's Bruce and John and Ethan. And we'll take your calls and answer your questions about engines, performance, fuel mileage, upgrades, troubleshooting, electronics, you name it. We'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and ask the question. We're going to get to those questions in just a little bit. I want to welcome back the guys from Pittsburgh Power. Hey, guys, welcome back. Kevin, thank you for having us, and we missed you last week. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin, uh, I don't recall giving you uh, permission to take that off. (laughs) I I knew that was coming. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I put in in for that day off about uh, 10 minutes before the show, so. (laughs) <laughs> I'm rubbing off on you, I guess. <laughs> hey, All right, hey, Kevin. So, uh, we have a Kevin. We have a new owner operator and a new listener. I just spoke with him 15 minutes ago and had Bridget calm. His name is Chris. He's an offshore oil drill rig mechanical engineer, 62 years old. Just bought his first truck. And it's an ISX 2015 and a Kenworth, and he's going to be coming in for an emissions tune-up, and I'd like to welcome him to the show. Excellent. Excellent. I'd like to welcome in as well. Always great to have new listeners. So what's uh, what's new and exciting at Pittsburgh Power this week? Well, we're going to let John start, and it's about the coolant level. Well, quite often, uh, you, you need to take a truck up and down the road to get all the air bubbles out of the system. We recently had a fairly big job done, and customer called back completely unhappy that he, he had to add a gallon. And uh, just, just want to give a friendly reminder out there that uh, some of the more modern trucks don't bleed air out as easily as others, and there'll be a bubble sometime that's trapped in there that we need to take it up and down the road for a while to get to get out of there. So that's just a little little tidbit of info is something we were dealing with this morning and thought we'd uh, mention on the show. Uh, good piece of advice. So, you know, I'm sure when you guys are giving somebody back their truck, you mention that, tell them to keep an eye on it. I'm sure lots of other shops aren't. So it's a good thing to keep in mind if you have a shop, if you have your truck in the shop and they're doing anything with coolant, after you go drive it for a while, make sure you check that level again. Well, Kevin, here's yeah, the definitely. worst thing about this. This owner operator happens to have my cell phone number, and he was very irate and very rude on the phone to me at 2.32 a.m. I heard the text message go off, and I looked at it, and then that started. And so I've been up since 2.32 because of that, because he had to add a gallon of coolant. So some owner operators wow. wonder why I don't give out my cell phone. And this is a good reason why. 
Wow. You have a you problem know. and you have the owner of a business's cell phone, you wait till in the morning and you call the business. You don't call the cell phone. So I was a little upset this morning. You know, I, I, I talk all the time about building a good working relationship with a shop. In fact, I've, I've written whole articles on, and I, I've talked about my experience. So I had a tire guy that I relied on and built a relationship with. I had an engine shop that I relied on and built a relationship. I had a general mechanic. These were all different. I had a specialized air conditioning shop. And I took time and built those relationships. And it wasn't always easy. And there were times when I tried to build a relationship, for example, with the Volvo dealer, because I owned all Volvos, and I gave them chance after chance after chance, because building that relationship would have been important. And, you know, I, I overlooked things. They they would try to fix it. But after a while, and I, I'm talking some pretty major stuff. You know, like losing whole days of work and because they made a mistake or they do something right. And I would go back and I would talk to them and we would try. And finally, I just had to say, look, this isn't going to work. But that irate over something this minor, really, and, the, and that there's a good explanation for it and burn that bridge. You know, now, now he's not going to bring his truck back here. And, he goes somewhere else and they make a little mistake and he does that again. I, how is he ever going to get good service on his truck with an attitude like this? You know, when I say build a relationship with a good shop, that doesn't mean a shop that never, ever makes a mistake. We're all going to make mistakes. Things are going to go wrong. The only thing I ask in that situation is make it right. Explain to me what happened, why it happened, make it right, whatever it takes. But to go off on somebody, that's just really bad business. It's just so important to have a good relationship with the people who are going to work on your truck, and you're never going to do it like this. It's just that people need to learn to control their emotions and speak intelligently and professionally and say, now, we think we may have a problem, or I think I may have a problem. Let's work this out. Not text the owner of a business at 2.32 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty crazy. You what know, else I've we got? got? Brother-in-law. Okay, go ahead. Never mind. Go ahead. Yeah, I've got a couple of things uh, in, re in relation to the pack car engines and potentially tuning them. I've got a number of owner-operators have been calling me uh, over the past months since we announced we'd start working on them about tuning them. And I've now got two of the three pieces of the puzzle in place to do that. So there really has been progress made. I keep telling everybody the same story. You know, I used to tell them a couple of months, and now I tell them a couple of weeks. And I believe we're uh, we're a whole lot closer now. So if you're somebody that I've talked to about uh, tuning your pack car, we're, we're, we're getting a whole lot closer. And I would well, love to start news. working on some of these things, though, too. We haven't had – I don't know if they're not breaking down much or what, but we uh, – well, we're we're all equipped to to work on the pack car engine, so you know if it's something other than tuning right now, we we can handle that as well. Uh, all we've had is, so far are a couple of computer updates and a minor uh, after treatment issue or two that we've solved. But uh, you know if you need an overhead or any kind of maintenance done, we're we're a whole lot cheaper than your average Peterbilt or Kenworth dealer, and we're qualified to do it. So if uh, you know 
anyone out there. But again, I uh, apologize for giving everybody the same story over and over again on the tuning, but we had a couple of pieces of the pie fall together today, and uh, so we'll be we'll be a whole lot closer in the next week or so on tuning the PACCAR. And we hope to do exactly the same thing we do with the ISX, uh, you know, try to turn off some of the babysitters and a little bit more horsepower and a little more you know, reliability, a little, little more user-friendly. Got it. Well, you sound just like my programmers. Every time I ask them about a project, the answer is always the same. Two weeks. <laughs> I feel like that. I, I'm almost embarrassed. I get these calls and I don't have the stuff in place yet. And been on other projects and spread kind of thin here. We we're right now doing an installation of a uh, one of our one of our soot separators on a pack car. We've got an MX13 in right now in a Kenworth T800. That we're uh, it's been a more complicated uh, installation than on our our DD15 test truck. So this is I think the DD15 is probably the easiest to install, and I think we're probably doing the most difficult one right now. So we'll have the, have that book ended now. Interesting. Yeah, very very cool stuff. That's all exciting. Thanks. Anything else, or should we get to some calls? I think I think we're good. I don't know. You got anything, Ethan? Uh, I've got some questions. Okay, let's get the questions. Let's do that. We've got just enough time to get started on one before the break. Dan, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. How you doing? Good. What's on your mind today? Good. How are you? I have an oil sample for you guys to look at, or for Kevin, for you to look at, uh, and then maybe you can, Kevin and the guys can hear what you're saying about the oil sample, and then maybe I can get an idea of where to go with this, because... Um, I noticed that uh, my lead went up a little bit. Yeah, so I, I've got the oil sample here in front of me, guys. I'll I'll talk about it, and then if you want to jump in, we're coming up on a break as well. So I think what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to put everybody back on hold. I'm going to take us into the break, and we'll come back, and we will talk about this oil sample right after the break. Um, might be an interesting one here. I've been, this is a, an issue I've been waiting to see some results on and, and maybe we've got an idea here. So we will come back right after this. We'll talk about this oil sample and we'll get to more of your calls and questions. Check out the website. It's letstruck.com. Lots of stuff going on. CMC sign up is open can do it on the website when you're on let's truck just look up for the events tab or you can always call us if you've got a question about anything we have a great tribe care team you can reach them at 855-800-FUEL 855-800-3835 we'll be right back stick around i'm kevin ruff
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and Ethan and John from Pittsburgh Power with me, and we are going to get right back to the phone calls. We're looking at an oil sample for Dan. So, Dan, I, I just want to verify. Is this a 30-weight oil? That's what I want to clarify to you. Um, when I changed the oil, I went from regular oil to synthetic blend, Bello Stuff 400 synthetic blend. The 1030. Then I went to a fully synthetic because I was able to find the Bello 5W30 fully synthetic. So I went and I changed the oil to that. The issue that I'm having is locating and finding this oil anywhere. I mean, sometimes I'll get lucky and I'll see it on the shelf in Walmart and I can grab it. The only problem that I'm having is I can't find it anywhere. And I'll try to keep, usually I'll try to keep like two or three gallons on the truck with me um, as a backup, but you never know. So I'm having a difficult time finding it. So what I've been doing was I've been, I started doing the 5W40 fellow and putting that in there to replenish if there's any oil that, that's needed, especially when I do the filter changes. I fill them up with the 5W40. There is one gallon of Lucas that I put in there when I first did the switch over from okay. to the 5w30 okay well that that story explains all the weird stuff i'm seeing on the sample so if you're looking at the sample all of that yellow you see over in the multi-source metals and additive metals you can ignore all of those the reason they're all being flagged is because those additive numbers are based on each individual oil Every oil has a different additive package, even going from a Delo 40 weight to a Delo 30 weight, you're going to have a different additive package. So you've been kind of mixing oils, which isn't a problem. They're all compatible, but it will throw off all of those numbers at the lab. They're not going to look right, but it's, it's kind of meaningless. So you can ignore that whole section. The viscosity being flagged as too high is because of the Lucas. You know, they're expecting a number in the 11, maybe low 12 range on a 30 weight, and you're at 13.5 for viscosity, but that's because of the Lucas. So that's understandable. Now, what I'm more concerned about is your wear metals have increased. The lead has gone up, iron's gone up. And my guess is this engine may not handle a 30 weight oil all that well. You know, this is the this is kind of the experiment. We're moving to the 30-weight lighter oils to get better fuel economy, and the new trucks are actually being built. The new engines are being built to use a 30-weight oil. But the older engines, we're not so sure. I've seen some tests where okay. the older engines hold up just fine to a 30-weight, but there's some speculation, are we going to see more wear metals? with the 30 weight on the older engines. And that that's probably what's going I, on here. Now, not horrendous I wanna, wear metals. I want to ask you a Go question. Ahead. If you look at the, at the sample, on sample number one, if you look at the history on the iron, I had a 53 at first, right? Yeah. Then I heard Bruce um, talk about the magnet for the filters. So what I right. did was I ordered the magnet for the OPS 
Okay. And I put the magnet on it. Then I got it down to 35. Then it went down to 28. Right. Then I that's the fourth. This last one was the one when I started doing the mixture because I can't find this oil, and I'm getting to the point. I was like, I'm gonna go back to the 1030 weight because I noticed with mixing the oils, another thing I noticed was uh, increase on my uh, fuel mileage for some reason. That and, that may have and when I was other at 1030. Yeah, I, I mix, you know, a little bit of 40 weight in with a 30 weight. That There's not enough change there for us to track that in fuel economy. So the fuel economy change, probably something completely different. But I, I think the increased wear metals is the 30 weight oil. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't use it. There, there's always a trade-off. We could go to 30 weight to get better fuel economy. And we may take a little life off the engine. That's always hard to measure, though. I mean, 66 on iron when you have 75,000 miles on the oil is not horrible. Not at all. It's, but I think that's actually, why we're... That. What's that? That 75,000 is wrong. It's actually, it's, it's, that 75,000 is wrong. It's actually more than that. It's 117,000 miles. You know, then, then 66 on iron is not bad at all. That, that's low. So um, the 30 weight, as far as being able to find it, it's going to start becoming a lot more common. All the uh, oil manufacturers just released their newest oils in December. So you should start seeing those hit the shelf. Um, yeah, the, the, new, uh, the new oil standards, there's two of them now, but the 30 weight oils are gonna become a lot more common. That's the thing is that the, the thing is is that when you're when when you want to do something and you feel you're doing something right and then you can't find the product and then when you do find the product since people don't want to buy that product what happens is I feel that these big places that you can actually these uh, lubrication shops that you can actually go to and order this oil from them or buy the oil or they bring it in for you. To me, I feel like they're price gouging because they it, it goes skyrocket. Like the the uh, the ten thirty or the five thirty, sorry, uh, fully synthetic. When I purchased that one, it was they were charging me um, forty dollars a gallon for it. And hey, the, nope. you know, I went and I bought four cases. Yeah, Nobody you know it, what engine this is. What en what uh, engine oh, are yeah. we talking about? Uh, I had it on here on the sample. It's C15. I'm not sure what year. Dan, what year is it? 2007. It has okay. A so it's in uh, conversion. Has your Pittsburgh pop? Okay. Oh, he was All breaking. Next thing bit. you said. Next thing you said, you put the magnets on the OPS filter. The magnets are supposed to be on the full flow filter on the engine, not the bypass filter. Apparently, they're working on a bypass filter. Next time you change the OPS, take the magnets off there and put them on your full flow filter. What's the what's the reason for that, Bruce? I didn't know that. I see my logic would well, have been to put the them on the bypass filter because the, the oil flows lower. Yeah, bypass filters only get ten percent of the oil. Full flow gets 100%, plus the oil is traveling through the full flow filter faster, 
so there's more turbulence in there to get the metals to the outside to the magnetic ah, okay. field. Got it. I was thinking the opposite, that because it's moving slower, we had more time to pull the iron out. So I learned something today, too. Um, I was going to talk about something else, and I just... Uh, do you guys want to say anything else about that, um, about the oil sample itself? Well, my my personal feeling is with, with a twin turbo A-cert, there's a lot of internal pressure on the pistons and the rod bearings. I think I would stay with the 1040 or 1540. That's my personal uh, feeling. I'd go to the I'd he's go single to the turbo, synthetic, I but how is he single now? I think that's uh, what he said when he's oh. breaking up there. Oh, I wonder. Oh, somebody okay. changed it. You mean? Apparently, he's an 07. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. You know, the, I, I, we're we're going to see a lot of this, I think, because a lot of people aren't even going to know the difference between the 40 and 30 weight. I mean, a couple of years ago, you couldn't find a 30 weight heavy duty diesel engine oil anywhere. I mean, the 30 weights are fairly new, and now they're going to become a lot more common with these new oil standards. And we're going to have people just grabbing oil and not paying attention to the 40 or the 30 weight. And there's still some question about whether the older engines um, are going to stand up to this. I did see one test, though. They took three different engines. I forget which ones they were. You know, it was a Detroit um and the isx and i don't remember if it was a cat or something else but they did a um i remember right it was about a six hundred thousand mile tear down of the engine and ha they did 10 engines all together half of the engines had 40 weight half of the engines had 30 weight for the whole time they tore them apart they laid out all the parts and they brought in technicians master technicians and said tell us which engine has more wear. So the technicians were allowed to go through the parts and look at things and measure things, and they couldn't pick out the 30-weight engines. So at, after 600,000 miles, master technicians couldn't tell the difference in wear. Now, whether that's going to hold up in all engines on the road, we'll have to see. We're going to get to a break. We'll come right back and get to more of your calls and questions. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. We're going to get right back to the phones. I've got John and Ethan and Bruce with me from Pittsburgh Power. We're going to head off to Georgia. Jeffrey, welcome. Hello. How you doing, Kevin? Can you hear me okay? Sound great. Go ahead. Hello, Kevin. Okay, excellent. Thanks uh, for taking my call today. I appreciate all that you guys do. I've got a 1999 Freightliner Century with the N14. It had 180 uh, 1,800,000 miles. I had a new reman engine placed in the engine. They put the line bore and redid the crankshaft. But uh, uh, you got an oil sample there, and my iron level is getting a little high. I had to uh, replace two of the um, fuel injectors. Number four went out, and then number six went out, and then number six went out again. So uh, what needs to happen with this engine? Can you have a look at it for me, please? Yeah, um, I, I, I've got it here, but um missing some details. So how many miles are on this remand engine right now? The remand engine on the engine itself right now, it's got, uh, let me uh, look on my records here. It's got uh, uh, 27,000 miles on the remand engine right now. 27,000. You can't go by iron level on an engine that's breaking in. Naturally, it's going to be high. Right. You have, yeah, that's why you I got was... to get at least 25,000. And you should do a, a two to 3,000 mile oil change to start with, and then an 8,000, and then a 12 or 15, and then go from there. But those first three oil changes are very critical. So change your oil if you haven't. Go ahead. Understood. Yes, the first oil change was at 5,382 miles. The second oil change was at uh, uh, 21,647. And uh, between that time, I had to add one additional gallon of oil uh, after the second oil change at uh, 8,800 miles. That's okay. So you're still broken yeah. in. You're still breaking in. Yeah, so the numbers you're seeing, tin is elevated, copper is elevated, and iron is elevated. But like Bruce said, we expect that during break-in. That's common to see those wear metals elevated. So the next sample is when we should start seeing things come back down. We'll be past that 25,000. Doesn't mean they're going to go to normal, but they'll start to decrease and I, I don't see anything wrong. I mean, your your fuel dilution is non-existent. Um, soot is, is pretty low and everything else looks good. We don't have any dirt in there. Um, no coolant leaks. Uh, so the wear metals, I wouldn't worry about this just break in stuff. Okay. That sounds excellent. Let me ask one more question about fuel injectors on the N14. Now I explained that I had installed the uh, original fuel injectors. I don't know what the mileage on those fuel injectors are. Should I replace those uh, fuel injectors and in sets? I replaced two, four, and six. After I replaced six, it went bad again. What do I need to do in terms of those fuel injectors? Run Lucas fuel conditioner in every tank. Mm -hmm. and you don't know the miles on the rest of the injectors. If they're over 800,000, I would replace them. But uh, Okay. The N14 likes to have Lucas in its fuel. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Okay. That's what I'll do then. All right. 
I really appreciate your time and looking at Moyle Sample. I think you guys are doing a great job for us out here. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the call. Let's head off to Ontario. Mike, welcome to the program. Hey, how you doing, Kevin? Good. What's on your mind today? Uh, I wanted to talk to you guys about an ISX. It's a 2009, 660,000 miles on it. Three weeks ago, it started eating antifreeze. It only eats antifreeze when it's under load. I've uh, run 1,200 miles empty, no issues at all. But whenever I get a load on, it's uh, going through about mm -hmm. uh, six quarts of shift. So about six quarts every 600 uh, miles. Uh, we've had, oh, the, wow. we've had, it in, had it under pressure for an entire weekend. Never lost any. They checked the, uh, the EGR cooler. Uh, not getting a whole lot of smoke out the, uh, the pipes. And uh, hmm. just wanted to call and see if they had any idea of where that might be going without starting to tear the engine apart. Because it can be a rabbit hole with those ISXs once you start to tear them apart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What could that be? There's so many things that are cooled on that. Yeah, like they put a new compressor on it. Did they? Okay. Yeah, they thought maybe the, uh, the compressor was creating uh, uh, pressure in the cooling system, and that uh, really didn't change anything. Uh, but it only goes through coolant whenever it's under load. If I'm running empty from place to place, it doesn't, doesn't go through much more than maybe a quart a day. Once I'm hooked up to a load, almost, it goes through a quart every 100 miles. No. Even it a quart sounds like a, a, a hot leak. But there is, I, I, I haven't been able to see anything externally, hmm. uh, except for a little bit around the uh, around the, the, the <coughs> fill on the plastic bottle. Going through that much coolant, I would expect to see it everywhere underneath the hood. Did you That's do any testing to see? Did you do any testing to see if there was compression making its way into the cooling system, uh, either a dye test or bubble test? Uh, they did the dye test. They didn't find anything. So no, no signs and of uh, combustion making its way in there. No. Okay. Now that that it had gone through seven gallons of coolant that week. Wow. I had gone about uh, seventeen hundred miles. It went through seven gallons of coolant. <laughs> well, if you can't find it, if it was mine, I would. Sorry. Bruce, are you there? If it was my engine. I would. Yes. Can you hear okay, me? Okay, go ahead. Now we Yeah, we yeah. hear you now. Yeah. Yeah, we lost you there. Okay. I, I would put six cylinder kits in it and a head on it and then maybe okay. an EGR cooler because that's I mean you to take it apart and just do a head or something like that, what happens if it's something different? So I would just go through the engine. And if How many miles that, are we might as well roll in instead of uh, six hundred and sixty thousand. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because it, it just, yeah, it just happened like that. It just all of a sudden started going through coolant. It, it, it was running fine, and then all of a sudden it just started going through piles of coolant. So, so it's not a obvious that the EGR kitchen. cooler or – yeah. No, they, they had it under pressure for an entire weekend. It never lost more than two pounds of pressure on the on the cooling system over the entire weekend. Right. Wow. It's just it's, – it's, it's, it's one of those problems, children. 
<laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> Is that got a water cooled yeah, like, doser for the uh, 09? Would that have? Uh, yeah, it would. And that, that that's water cooled. Right, that has a cooling. No, I believe no, it does. Not, it does. Yeah, they've they already changed out and put a new compressor on it. No, not the compressor. We're talking about dosing. The dosing valve for the regen for the DPF that has a little little cooling plate underneath it, I believe. Um, okay. So under heavier load, that calls for way more regen. I wonder if we get, if there's transfer there. If we got some yeah, sort of transfer there with the stack is when it's doing a rolling regen. And I don't know yeah, whether it's, it's actually, smoke that, from well at that temp it could be it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna vaporize the coolant pretty quickly. You might not see it if it's under heavy okay. load only. I'm just trying to think of things that change states that change under heavier load. And one thing that happens is you're gonna probably have a yeah well, you're, gonna just have, thinking a lot you're gonna have higher you're gonna have higher cylinder pressure hate, too because you're under load. Yeah, you have higher cylinder pressures as well, which usually just puts compression back the other way because you've only got 15 psi of uh, of coolant pressure, but yeah. you're gonna have. I don't know what's what's a what's a common cylinder pressure, Bruce? 2,000, 1,800, something like that. I mean, what, what kind yeah, of pressure? Yeah, on a hard pull, they can be as high as 2,800. 2,800 pounds. So, you know, you could have a leak. Yeah. That's, you know, your 15 pound uh, pressure test over the weekend is never gonna touch, but whenever you see the the you know the 2800 pounds on a hard pull it'll act like a check valve so it could be you know, right. under heavy load a small crack in the head uh a tiny crack in a the isx liners are pretty normal you don't see much cracking fitting in those and there's not a whole lot of it exposed to water jacket either the way it has that mid-stop uh liner or the other things every piece of that uh after treatment system the doser valve the egr valve and I believe that the differential pressure switch also water cooled. They've got little water cooling plates under them, or in them they have their little their small lines that move water around to those. So if one of those is you've got some crossover, some contamination, the other direction with the coolant that could that could happen too. So got it. There's a couple other possibilities to check on. That is a tough one. We'll uh, we'll be right back. Stick around. Got more stuff coming right after this. Kevin Rutherford, this is the Power Hour. All right, we're down to the final segment. I'm going to give you a quick heads up here. Um, at the end, I'm going to say goodnight, goodbye, all that stuff. Don't hang up. We're going to come back and do a second hour. Uh, looks like we've got lots of questions lined up. Second hour is general. Anything goes. We're going to get started. Here we go. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're down to the final segment. This is the Power Hour. Bruce and John and Ethan from Pittsburgh Power are here helping me out. We're going to get back to your calls and questions. Mike in Indiana, it's your turn. Go ahead. 
Yeah, hello? It's your turn. Hi. Go ahead. Hey, uh, this is Mike. Um, I got a BXS uh, 2005, um, and I had a set of injectors that I bought, were used, thought they were good. We put them in. Um, they didn't work. I had to have it towed to the shop, put my old ones back in. Now, when they done that, they put in different trim codes. My question is, I had Ethan redo that last summer, the ECM. Did that mess up everything that you done, Ethan? So you, you swapped injectors twice since then, it sounds like. Yeah, I put the original ones back in because the ones that I thought were a good deal were junk. So I had to have it towed to the shop because I thought I had another problem. Well, they ended up putting my original ones back in, and I'm still running those. But when they done that, they went in and changed all the trim on the injectors. So that's I didn't know if that messed up what you had done before. Do you guys put in, like, certain codes for the injectors? No, I, I used the stock ones. I okay, to, so that didn't change anything. Yeah, that's why you're getting even amounts of fuel in all the cylinders. Okay, all right. So that's what so I no was afraid done. of. They done. Yeah, that's good. Um, are the cat, because I do need a set of injectors. I'm just going to put new ones in about a month because I've got a million three on it. Um, are the cat ones? This is good because I know they used to have trouble with the reman injectors here a while back. Are they still seeing as much trouble with them? We haven't seen a whole lot of trouble with the injectors, but I'd suggest an alternative and use the Delphi injector. We're we're selling the Delphi injector now, and we've had really good luck with that. And we've actually worked closely with Delphi. Uh, they they've uh, came came here and used our facility for testing, and uh, we keep some of those in stock, or they're only a day away. And they'll save you a few bucks over the cat injectors. The cat injectors are quite expensive, and I've not seen any uh, advantages to them, shall we say. They don't uh, particularly run better than the Delphi's. Oh, really? Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, because I know the cats are around 600 a pop. So Yeah, these, these I, I can't quote it over the phone or uh, right now off the top of my head, but they were significantly less. All right. Can you ship them to me if I do that? I mean, can I get we them sure through you it. or? Yeah, give a call here and uh, you call and ask for me just so there's no confusion. And I'll need your engine okay. serial number, and we'll uh, yeah we'll get them going for you. If I don't have them in stock, they're only a day away, so they'll go more than a day from from uh, our supplier to here. Okay. All right. So well, I appreciate it. Call, yeah, give a call and ask for me. And if you don't get me right away, leave a message. Uh, I do spend some time in the shop, and I try to get caught up on my calls later in the day. <laughs> no problem. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Okay. All right. Let's Thank you. off to Mississippi. Justin, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, getting ready to rebuild a Series 60 D-Deck 4, and I've heard Bruce talk about the different cylinder kits with different compression ratios. I'd like him to explain the pros and cons to the different ratios. Well, John has done the research, and John also did the CCing of the head in the combustion chamber, so I'm going to let John answer this one. Okay. The uh, the lower compression, lower knocks, uh, I don't know this for a fact, but 
we did an actual effective compression ratio test on both the 15 to 1 and the 16 and a half to 1 piston and the 15 and 15 to 1 piston only did 132 i believe it was uh when you when you added up all the cc's which will run in a diesel and, and run just fine and keep cylinder pressures low and you know there there may be some slight advantages if you're building a really high performance engine to go that low on compression but from a practicality standpoint you're if the temperature dips below 40 degrees you're going to throw a whole lot of white smoke out when it's cold and uh you'll have other other issues you know involved with the low compression uh as low as that as that goes now the uh 16.5 to 1 piston which is the other one available for the series 60 that netted i believe 15.1 or 15.2 which is kind of right where we want to be for practical purposes. We can still make a lot of horsepower with that. And you won't have, you know, gobs of white smoke anytime it dips below uh, 40 degrees. So we've been doing all of our builds regardless of the serial number with the uh, 16.5 to 1 piston in. So both of them are stock pistons from Detroit? Yeah, both stock. Yes, yeah. Yeah, no aftermarket, just a stock. Okay. All right. Well, that's what I needed to know. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. You, you you might want to balance those rods and pistons too to make sure that you get a smooth engine and put our damper and balancer and exhaust manifold, our full tilt exhaust manifold and our performance Detroit turbo. That way you'll gain your mile to the gallon. There you go. We're off to Ohio. Lucas, welcome to the program. Hey guys, thanks for taking my call. Um I just had a question in regards to a uh, 2013 Peterbilt 587 with a Cummins ISX. Just wondering what you could, what you would consider to be a high idle percentage to stay away from. 35% or more. 35? Yeah, I, I like to see them down in the 15 and 20. Ethan, what's what's the average that you see? Oh, it, it depends on what the truck's being used for. I think the highest I've ever seen was 42%, wow. um, but that was on a well site and did a lot of idling. The The average is anywhere from 15 to about 23%. Okay, so I was high. Because of the truck I'm looking at, I don't think it has an APU, so I just wanted to see what number to stay away from, but I, I appreciate it. All right. Let's You're welcome. see. We can get another call or two here. Let's go to New York. Ron, welcome to the program. Hi, guys. Thanks for taking my call. I um, I have a 99 Volvo 12.7 Detroit. Uh, I like to take it down to Pittsburgh Power. I haven't put a fast system on. Uh, a couple questions. Uh, where would you generally mount uh, the fast system on this vehicle? and uh, approximately how long would it take to do it? And last question, realistically, what kind of fuel mileage increase would I get uh, by putting the FAST on there? I'll answer the fuel mileage usually three-tenths, and I'm going to let John okay. answer the location. And the uh, installation is usually between sixteen and $1,700. Okay. So that... That particular one on the Volvo, we on the right side on the frame, uh, ahead of the front axle, uh, under the hood there, right where your uh, uh, usually that's where the Davco is mounted. You've got the Davco uh, filter on there. I do not. There, I have the 
No, I do not have a DAVCO. It has the uh, the primary and secondary filters um, to be on the driver's side of the motor. Okay. Okay, they're on the motor, but do they, uh, the fuel lines, okay, so there's no uh, frame-mounted filter head then? No. Okay. So normally would mount it in place of one of those, but if it, it hasn't got one, we'll mount it, you know, somewhere on the left frame rails there, just to, on the driver's side, probably directly above the axle. Okay, great. And um, I assume i got to make an appointment. Uh, how much notice do you need for me to, to bring it down there and have you guys put it on? We're only about we a week out right now. Okay. All right. Let's sneak in one more before we've got to get out of here right there in Pennsylvania. Jeff, go ahead. Yeah. A friend of mine's got a 04 ISX, and it keeps – he's put three pan gaskets on it, and they keep leaking. They put a new pan on, and – the gasket now so and it's starting to leak again and i told him i think it's building up pressure is there any ideas on why it'd be building up pressure in that pan um you'd have to run a manometer test on it to make sure it's the cylinders aren't worn out and they're causing excessive blow-by okay yeah it's only got about I'd 500 thousand on it so does the o5 have, have a filter on it no. No? Okay. That's an 04. 04? Okay. What year did they start putting yeah. the, uh, what year did they start putting that uh, blow-by filter on? 07. 07, okay. Okay. Well, yeah, I'll do a, I'll get, get it. Uh, find out. Come on, come on over and we'll do a uh, manometer test on it. And tell you how much blow by that's uh take the, br- go ahead. the breather tube off take the breather tube off the engine and push a wire up through it and make sure it's not clogged and clean it out clean out the breather tube and the whole breather system but then again when that clogs it usually pushes oil out of both ends of the turbocharger got it that's all the time we've got Thanks to uh, Bruce and John and Ethan from Pittsburgh Power. Give them a call if you need more help, and we'll do it again next week. This was the Power Hour. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. Kevin Rutherford. All right, we're going to get started on a second hour. Anything goes in this hour, so we're going to get started and get to your calls. Here we go. Your money, your taxes, your truck, and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs. Back in your pocket. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking. We take your calls and answer your questions about trucks, money, fuel mileage, maintenance, tires, taxes, technology, 
health and fitness on the road, getting started as an owner-operator, finding freight, working with brokers, getting your authority, you name it, we'll talk about it. We're going to get to those calls. One quick thing, um, just an article I read online, and I've seen this before. I've commented on this kind of stuff before. It just makes me a little crazy. Um, It's a story about here's what would happen if trucks stopped for just five days. And they talk about the stores being empty and no fuel, and, and we get it. Trucks deliver a lot of stuff. But this attitude that we are like the only important part of the chain, and it, 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 again, it's almost like demanding respect because of the job we do, and it's so important. But you know what? Most jobs in the economy are important. All jobs are important to somebody. But think about this. What if the people who worked at truck stops, the truck stop employees, just stayed at home and we locked up the truck stops? Now what happens? We're going to have enough fuel to get us through a day or two. And then we're going to have trucks parked all over. So I guess those truck stop employees are just as important. What if the people at the refinery stop working? It's not going to take long before the trucks run out of fuel and they can't go anywhere. What if the first responders don't come to work? What if the electrical workers don't come to work? We could go on and on and on. You know, drop this attitude of just because we drive a truck and we deliver everything to the store, we're the most important part in the link. It's just, not only is it not true, there are lots of really critical pieces to the chain. And if any one of those links break, everything falls apart. That's just the truth. But when you keep making statements like this and demanding respect, it just pisses people off. And the idea of, well, if we shut down, we'll show them how important we are. First off, it's never going to happen. But if it does, do you really think that people are going to respect you more? They're just going to be pissed off. I mean, think about what it's going to do to their life. What if the truck stop workers all stayed home? Would you respect them more or would you be pissed off because of the inconvenience and all the problems they caused you? nobody really looks at anybody striking and says, oh, good for them. Most workers in the economy are performing a job that's critical. That's common. What if all the people in grocery stores decided not to come to work and they just locked up the doors? How long would it take for us to be hungry? So just drop this attitude. So I I posted this on Facebook and made similar um, comments about it. And I got a ton of response. 99% of it was in agreement. Um, This whole idea of demanding respect because you're a truck driver just drives me a little crazy. You don't demand respect, you earn respect in any job, in any position, in life. You earn respect. To demand it it's just idiotic to me, really. Just go out and do your job. When you took this job, you had an you have an agreement with your employer. 
you agree to come to work and do the job they hired you for. They agreed to pay you. That's it. Come to work, do your job. If you want respect, earn it. Don't demand it. And don't demand it just because you do a certain job. Um, there were a couple people who commented that obviously I have forgotten what it was like to be a truck driver. No, I haven't done this my whole life. I might not drive anymore, but I drove plenty. And I can tell you 25 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, when I was still driving, I had the same attitude. You don't get respect just because you do a job. And, and I talk about this every year on Driver Appreciation Week. It's the same message. Go out and do your job. If you want respect, earn it. Don't demand it. Let's, uh, let's get to some phone calls. Let's head off to uh, Georgia. Steve, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin, thanks for taking my, my call in, and, and I totally agree with you in the opening statement there. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, um, I decided to, uh, about a month ago, I decided to come completely off of uh, uh, sodas and soft drinks, and and only thing that I drink now is water, and uh, maybe two or three cups of coffee a week with no sugar, you know, just just a uh, plain black coffee. And okay. and I, I I decided to do that a, a month ago and the results of that I I lost 10 pounds without doing anything extra. Now, isn't that about thing? 2 weeks ago Stop there I, a second. I'm sorry. Isn't isn't that amazing? I mean, people struggle to lose weight all the time, and one change, and you lost 10 pounds. Yes. That's really amazing. That is. Yeah. And, and, and about two, two weeks ago, I decided to come completely off carbs and sugar, and, um, and I lost the, just by only doing that, I lost another 13 pounds just just only by doing that, and um, excellent. One of the questions that I want, one of the questions that I want to ask you is, is that you know I heard that someone said that you can lose weight too fast. Is that considered being losing weight uh, too fast? No, and I think there's a lot of confusion about that. Um, you know, if you do some sort of drastic reduced calorie diet and you're starving yourself and you're just kind of white knuckling through every day, just trying to beat the hunger and you lose weight really fast, you're probably going to gain it back. You're, you're not going to be able to maintain that starvation kind of eating. And, and people do that and they have very fast weight loss. They tend to gain it back. But what you're doing makes so much more sense. You made one change. You, you stopped drinking your calories. That was one change, and you lost weight. Then you made another change. You cut back on your carbs, which is a great thing to do, and you lost weight. We find on a true ketogenic diet, if, if somebody else doesn't have any other issues going on with hormones or thyroid and that kind of thing, on a true ketogenic diet, when your body's in ketosis, you can lose, on average, a pound a day. Now, 
traditionally that would have been considered very fast weight loss. And, and some people would have said, oh, oh, you shouldn't do that. There was a time when I would have said you shouldn't do that. Now I know better. When people lose weight on ketosis, it does happen fast. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I will tell you one thing that can happen. Um, we store toxins in the fat cells of our body. And when you lose weight rapidly, especially in the beginning, you dislodge those toxins. They, they have to find some place to go. Now, we'd like to get them out of our body, but that doesn't always happen. Sometimes they just move around. And those toxins sometimes can cause weird symptoms. So occasionally, if somebody loses weight too fast, we will see things like that. But even that isn't really a big problem. So to answer your question, no, the, the way you're losing weight is, is good. Nothing wrong with it at all. Okay, great. And I know also I picked up, uh, I started uh, walking, just doing like a, uh, a fast walk for 30 minutes a day. And that's really helping me out as far as breathing. I'm not just say overweight, I'm more muscular. I haven't got down to 300 pounds just within, you know, just within this month. I done got back down to 300 pounds. And one of the issues that I am having is the is the hunger. Um, what I have been doing is, like, whenever I feel the urge to eat or I feel hunger, um, I just drink a lot of water and, and just wait about 30 minutes to an hour. And then if I still continue to feel hunger, you know, I get something like a salad or or something like that. Yeah. Is that uh, the me, way to go? It, yes and no. One of those things you're doing is exactly correct, and one of those things we could do better. So let's talk about that right around the corner. Um, when you're hungry, there's a better solution. But you got one of them right. We'll work on the other one right after this. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're going to get right back to the phone calls. I was talking with Steve in Georgia. So, Steve, um, one of the things you just said, I want everybody to listen to because it was exactly correct. If you are hungry, try drinking water first, especially have you ever had one of those times where you're hungry, but you're not really sure what you're hungry for. And no matter what you eat, it doesn't seem to satisfy it. 
Yes, all the time. That's almost always dehydration. So that that is the time, absolutely. Drink water, wait a little while, drink some more water, keep sipping water. Usually if you have that craving and you food just isn't satisfying it, many times we're just dehydrated, so try drinking. When you said, if that doesn't work, I go eat okay. a salad. Nothing, nothing wrong with that, except I would make sure that salad is loaded with fat. So avocados, nuts, seeds, lots of, uh, you know, a good quality dressing, a little extra olive oil, um, hard-boiled eggs, anything we can do to get fat into that. Because I will tell you what will satisfy your appetite. It's fat. Um, I, I, one okay. of the trips I did recently, I needed to get a bunch of driving in in a very short period of time, and I did not want to stop. Um, so I would drink bulletproof coffee in the morning, which always satisfies my appetite. And literally later in the day when I was driving, if I got a little hungry, I would eat like a hunk of butter and it would kill my appetite like that. Satisfied, I could just keep going. Fat is very oh, satisfying wow. to our appetite. Carbohydrates will increase our appetite. So we, we want to avoid, that's one of the reasons we avoid the carbohydrates, because it spikes our blood sugar, then our blood sugar drops, and it's when your blood sugar is dropping, you get those hunger signals that are really hard to resist. And we don't want to have to fight those all day. You know, losing weight, being healthy, isn't about fighting your appetite all day, because that's a losing battle. So the, the thing is, you give your body nutrition for one thing, make sure you're eating nutrient-dense food, but give it enough fat, and that will turn off the hunger signal. So think of things like nuts and seeds and cheese, um, fatty cuts of meat, avocados, butter. Uh, what else could we snack on going down the road? Um, anything very high in fat will satisfy your appetite. Um, you can even look up recipes for what are called fat bombs. And they're just little snacks that you can make that are very, very high in fat. Because that's what a ketogenic diet is. High fat, low carb, that's what helps control our appetite. And that's why people lose weight so fast. Let's go to Pennsylvania. Dave, welcome to the program. Hey, Kevin, thanks for taking my call. Uh, my question is about, well, there's two questions. One's about wiper blades. Uh, I got a 2014 Cascadia Evolution, and I'm, I'll, I've tried many different wiper blades, and they're worn out in about a month where they're streaking and not doing the, uh, not wiping the windshield real well. I have replaced the wiper arms, and still I get the same problem. Hmm. Is the, you know, as far as the quality of wiper blades, I, I, I'm with you on this. I, I hate when my wiper blades don't work really well. I'm kind of a freak about my wiper blades. And I wish I could find a consistently good brand. Um, it, it seems like I may find one for one vehicle, then I go to find it in a different size and I can't find that brand. So I, I'm with you. I'm a little frustrated on wiper blades myself. I don't have a good answer on a brand. Uh, if somebody else does, 
you know, by all means, let me know something you've had really good luck with. The other thing I might check for, though, if they're wearing out that fast, is look to make sure the window isn't heavily pitted. You know, when you get a lot of pitting on the glass, that, that's almost like abrasiveness, and it'll really wear that um, wiper blade out pretty quickly. So, you know, I found, depending on where, what part of the country you run in, I, I had trucks that literally I would replace um, the windshield almost every year. Not because it was cracked, but because it was pitted. Okay. I have had my windshield replaced, both of them replaced a couple times, and uh, we use uh, Safelite. And I found out, too, that Safelite uses recycled glass, which I guess is not as good. Yeah, that uh, and that may be a part of it. If that glass surface isn't really smooth, then that's going to be abrasive on that wiper blade. So um, that's just something to think about, something to look at. And maybe we'll get uh, somebody else to weigh in on a really good quality wiper blade. I, I'm kind of with you. I've tried different things over the years and haven't really found a blade that I'm all that satisfied with yet. Let's see. Let's head off to Utah. Eric, welcome to the program. Hello, Kevin. Can you hear me okay? I can. Go ahead. Okay. I was just wanting to ask you a, um, an investment question. Um, I want to know if you can tell me, is there a way for me to invest in tax lien certificates inside an account like a Roth IRA? something tax-free, you know, so I'm not giving away all my profits. Uh, so before I get to um, whether or not you can do that in an IRA, tell me about why you're investing in tax liens anyway. Um, because they're the only place I can make 16% a year annual return on. And and are, that is what you're doing consistently. Uh, I have not. I haven't gotten into them yet. I'm basically starting from scratch oh. on a re retirement okay. plan. So, However, I've done a lot of digging into them, though. Yeah, here's the thing: you're not going to get that return. You're just not. If there was any place that you could get sixteen percent like that everybody on the planet would be all over it. I mean, 16%, almost unheard of in a consistent investment. Now, there, there are mutual funds that'll do 40% in a year, but then you watch that same mutual fund next year, it might do 2%. It might lose money. Thinking well, that you're going to get- I don't trust mutual funds whatsoever. I'm not saying you should trust mutual funds. It's not a matter of trust. There are some mutual funds that are actually outstanding. There are mutual funds that are horrible. That are stocks that are outstanding. There are stocks that are horrible. No matter how good something is, we can't predict the future. A stock that has been doing fantastic for five years could have a horrible year. A mutual fund that's been rock solid for 10 years could have a bad year. All investments carry risk. And all investments will go up and down. And anybody that tells you this is a guarantee, run the other way. 
because if it's a guarantee, I will tell you the rate of return is going to be two or three percent if you're lucky. You know, those are CDs are paying one percent or less right now. There's just not a lot of return guaranteed in this market, and there never really is. So I want to caution you heavily that investing in anything has a tremendous amount of risk, and I can promise you, you're not going to get a consistent 16% out of tax liens. You're just not. And tax liens, like any other well, investment, could lose. But having said all that, if you decide that you okay. do want to invest in tax liens in an IRA, you can do it. I mean, there, there are places that do it. One of them you might want to check is um, called checkbookira.com. They do some um, tax lien stuff in an IRA. And again, I mean, there, there are ways to invest in almost anything within an IRA. There are specialized companies. You can invest in real estate. You can invest in gold. You normally have to find a company that has put those things together. The other thing you can do is just do a Google search, tax lien investment in IRA, things like that. And the companies that do this right. will come up. It can be done. The problem, but again, I, I go ahead. The, the problem I have is I trust me, I, I lost over $15,000 doing an online course and how to learn how to do these things because Sean Higgins was a friggin' crook. But <laughs> um, there's plenty I did learn about it. And, I, and I'm not talking about that I expect consistent returns at all times, but you know, I, I am aware of what I'm doing as I go into it. Hold on a second. Let me, let, let me just use that example as a, a good example. If this guy whoever he is, I've never heard of him. If he's so good at investing in tax liens and getting a 16% return or whatever number he claims you can get, why would he waste time teaching anybody else to do that? Why wouldn't he just keep investing in his own? Well, at 16%, my God, I, I, we could be drop dead rich in no time whatsoever if we can get 16% returns. It's not going to happen, though. And, and I would heavily caution you against these kind of fringe investments. And tax liens are a fringe investment. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're going to get right back to some phone calls. We're off to Kentucky. Gene, welcome to the program. Yes, sir. How are you doing today, Kevin? Doing good. What can I help I sent you? over some, uh, I got a couple oil analysis over to you to take a look at. Um, now, I had mm -hmm. one at a sequence, the, um, the, the, the Gulf Coast analysis that was, a sample taken between my last two oil changes. 
Okay. And that's just for reference. Uh, but if you look at my most current, the, the mobile return, yeah. my lead is showing high. It is. The other thing that concerns me more so than the lead is why is your viscosity so high? Are you using a lot of Lucas? I am not. There is no Lucas in that whatsoever. Now, this is an M14. It's a 2003. I add a gallon of oil of every four to 5,000 miles, and that actual oil change, it ended up being pushed out to... I believe it's 28,000 miles. Um, I didn't want to go that long. It just ended up, whenever I realized it was time for the oil change, I was at 28,000 on that oil. Uh, again, no. there was approximately five to six gallon added in between that. And at the time of that analysis, it was about a gallon and a half low when I had the oil change done. And if you do that, if you take a sample at a gallon and a half low, all of your wear metals are going to be elevated because they're all going to be more concentrated into a smaller amount of oil. There are two things that right, are going to make there are two things that are going to make reading this sample difficult. One, the fact that you're using a gallon every four thousand miles, which is it's time to do an in-frame when you're at that point. I mean, you don't have to do it tomorrow, but six months at the most. Because you're putting in so that, much oil. It's not it's burning that. That's like the, uh, the the seal on the cam follower uh, gasket on the, the driver's side, which you got to dismantle half the motor to get in to replace that, that gasket. I, I kind of doubt you're a gallon every 4,000 miles. A gallon of oil every 4,000 miles would make an absolute mess of a truck. You may be leaking some of them, but if you have to replace a gallon right. every 4,000 miles, I would highly respect worn-out cylinder kits and rings. You can always have a manometer test done for crankcase pressure to verify that. But I, I, But either way, what I'm talking about is because you're putting in a gallon every 4,000, whether we're leaking it or burning, it doesn't matter. It makes it hard to read oil sample results because we're adding so much fresh oil. So it's going to mask right. other problems. Um, the biggest issue I see, where are you getting your oil chain? Uh, it's a TA or Petro. I can't imagine how we're getting viscosity up to 18 without some additive Lucas or something in there. 18 is outrageously high, and I'm not seeing any reason in this oil sample why it could be so high, unless you've got just a crazy amount of gunk built up inside this engine. You may want to consider... Um, do you ever get anywhere near Pittsburgh Power? You're in Kentucky now. You're not. That I live far. about forty minutes away. I live about forty minutes away from them. You may want to consider their engine flush. They have an oil engine flush, an engine oil flush that they do, because I can't figure out for the life of me why this viscosity is so high. And, and as long as it is that high, it's hard to figure out anything. So all I can think of is there is a bunch of gunk in this engine that we're not getting out 
doing. Would that possibly happen if the oil cooler was blocked up and not allow any proper flow to cool the oil down? Uh, not necessarily. Usually if the oil gets too hot, we see oxidation and some other things. And, and oxidation could cause an increase in viscosity, but I'm not seeing a lot of oxidation. I, I don't think that we're getting you know, overly hot on the oil. I, I think that I would do an engine flush. While you're at Pittsburgh Power, they could do the engine flush. They could do the crankcase pressure test as well, and they'll be able to tell you whether or not the cylinder kits are worn out. But using a gallon of oil every 4,000 miles is a pretty good indication. Like I said, I, I just don't think you're leaking that much. Let's uh, let's head off to Tennessee. Greg, welcome to the program. Kevin, I know you're doing great like always. Hey, I called in to talk to you about the Bruce and them, but I got another deal going on with uh, a young member of our family, and uh, she's about 24, and uh, she's been having these uh, these bouts with uh, her spinal fluid and too much pressure building up in the in the that that system in the brain and then also like on the eyeball and i thought that you were having a conversation the other day about that with another gentleman uh what what kind of symptoms is she having what well, it, it headaches and uh and she was just to the eye doctor here i believe it was yesterday and had a eye test done the, the the pressure on the, the you know the inner inner pressure with the eyeball you know where the the fluid is made with the for the eye internally is uh, yeah. extremely high and she has already gone and had a, a spinal tap done and uh, so I don't know I mean I I've been doing some research on this also and it like I was telling Bridget there like out of a hundred thousand people like her age uh, childbearing years. Uh, a little maybe overweight. I don't like to say that, but uh, you know, uh, one out of four people get this out of a hundred thousand, and so it's it's I guess it's not unheard of. But they really don't know why it why it happens, and so I know she's drinking nothing but water. But I'm wondering if it would be advantageous for her to go on a ketogenic paleo diet and uh, see if that would help. I mean, I don't know what produces. What part of the body produces the the spinal fluid, so to speak? You, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, and here's here's the problem with our medical system: they don't really try to dig to find the root cause of anything. They'll look at this and they'll say, "Oh, her the pressure in her eyes are too high. Here's a drug that lowers the pressure. Oh, she's having headaches. Here's something that will take care of the pain," which doesn't address the root cause of the problem, and many times causes more problems. As nutritional, therapist, as nutritional therapist, we don't try to diagnose what, we don't even really look at what, you know, the symptoms are, and we don't try to diagnose this and figure it out medically. What we do is work with people to get their diet as clean as possible. And many times, just by doing that, most of this stuff disappears anyway. If it doesn't, then we may dig a little further and see if maybe there's still a nutritional deficiency because we believe that food fixes everything. 
And, and I, I completely believe that if we get our nutrition right, our body will fix itself. So the goal is not to try to diagnose every little symptom going on. It's just get the diet as clean as you can get it. See what fixes itself. If there's more problems, then we can dig deeper and say, okay, you're having this problem. That could be a vitamin B12 deficiency. If we need to, we can go test for that and then change the diet to get more vitamin B12. So when there is a medical problem going on, if it's either an emergency kind of thing, it's, you know, maybe life-threatening or it's causing a lot of discomfort, what I recommend is find a, an alternative medicine practitioner. NTPs don't really have medical training. We have nutritional training. And there are times right. when we need somebody to intervene that has medical training but I still don't want to go to a traditional doctor because they're just going to want to prescribe drugs. So if there's a medical condition going on that we need to address quickly, then I recommend either a naturopath, a doctor of Chinese medicine, a functional medicine doctor. I would get I would leave the traditional medical community and at least go seek a second opinion from a, a non-traditional, like I said, e even chiropractors sometimes are have, have quite a bit of uh, training that can help in an area like this. So seek out somebody that has medical training, but also believes in natural and nutritional healing. And you could be working with an NTP at the same time to get the diet right. Um, other than that, we don't really address specific medical conditions um, like this. We would just work to get the diet clean and then work from there. So to answer your question, I think she should start on a keto diet. And once she gets to her weight goals, then transition to a paleo. And I think she's going to see a lot of improvement. We'll be right back. Stick around. Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We're going to get right back to some phone calls. We're down to the final segment. We're going to head off to Missouri. Robert, welcome to the program. Hey, sir. How are you doing today? Doing good. What's on your mind? Got a question. I've got a Detroit 60 Series 14 liter in a Freightliner Classic XL. Okay. I'm thinking it's got about 108 million miles on it, and I've not done an end frame on it. I've just done a head. Where would I be looking as far as time-wise to get a end frame done? Um, you know, the, the, really, the, the best indicator of when we need to put in cylinder kits, which is primarily what we're talking about when we talk about an in-frame, is oil consumption. 
I mean, that, that's our most accurate measure of when those cylinders are worn out. Like I said in the earlier call, we, we can do a crankcase pressure test. And, and what that does is that tells us how much of that compression is getting around the rings. Because when the rings and the cylinders are worn out, that compression that should stay in the top end of the cylinder ends up getting down into the crankcase. And we can measure that. And that gives us a pretty good indication. So between those two things, we can tell exactly what kind of shape the cylinder kits are in. And that's really what we're looking at here. You know, for the most part, if you've got an engine that's burning a gallon of oil every 5,000 miles, we're on our way to needing an in-frame, probably within the next six months. Um, if it stays steady, though, at you know, maybe four months from now, it's still burning a gallon every 5,000. Well, then you may have longer. When it gets down to a gallon every 3,000, then you better have the in-frame on the schedule. When it gets down to a gallon every 2,000, you got to get it done. I, those are some rough guidelines, but oil consumption is really our best measure. I'm running about a gallon every 12 to 15,000. You are nowhere close. That engine could last years at that point. Okay. okay. All right, because I, you know, I do an oil analysis every time, and everything seems to be about the same all the time. I don't see much flow by and that's good. the bottom. Yeah, the, those those are all good signs. I mean, it sounds to me like you've got an engine in excellent condition, and you're not anywhere near an in frame. Because the la when I had the head done. Even the cylinder walls still had the scores in them. Which is ideal. That, that's what we want. We want that cross-hatching. Okay. Once that cross-hatching goes away and we kind of polish that cylinder smooth, that's when we're looking at replacing uh, cylinder kits. But, you know, and we had that extra visual because you had the head off, but we don't necessarily need that. Right. That's just more, one more way of verifying that, yeah, these cylinders are still in great shape. So I think you've, uh, you're all set there. Let's go to, where are we off to? We are off to Ontario. Sarah, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Good. What can I help can you, you hear with me? today? Yep. Um, I'm having a little bit of issues. I've been uh, doing ketogenics since November. And I've taken off a significant amount of weight since then. Um, Good. I'm having a lot of issues right now with, uh, with blood sugar. Um, for like an example, I usually, good day, I'm usually running around 4.5 to 4.9. And last night I had dinner and within minutes of eating dinner, I passed out ran and grabbed my blood sugar monitor, took my blood sugar, and it was sitting at 11. And that probably happens two, three, four times a week, usually right at dinner time. And I'm trying to figure out how to get it under control so I don't just pass out and sleep for two and a half, three hours. Yeah, so you're going to have to help me here with the conversion. I'm used to um, the other measurement of blood sugar 
where we might see 180 or there's two different measurements. Do you happen to know the conversion, what that 11 would equal on the other chart? I'm not sure. I was trying to actually figure that out before I emailed Kim last night. <laughs> because yeah, okay. I know your your blood sugar conversions are different than ours. But my family doctor down here says, okay, your blood sugar level wants to be running between 5.0 and 7.3. That's where you need to be sitting around. So I know oh. at 11, that's extremely high, right? Like you don't want to go over nine for us. Yeah, okay. And that, that gives, and I just looked it up. It gives me a pretty good idea. I don't need an exact. I just needed to know kind of the trend. I'm curious as to why yeah. when you get, high blood sugar, you're passing out and getting tired, that's unusual. I mean, normally high blood sugar has no symptoms whatsoever. That's why people have it for years and never know it. Low blood sugar is what normally gives us all the symptoms. So normally if we have right. low blood sugar, we get nauseous, we get shaky, you've probably experienced those things. So I'm a little curious as to why you're when your blood sugar spikes, you're having those symptoms. But let, let's take a step back. You said you ate dinner, okay. then your blood sugar spiked. What, what did you eat? Uh, so last night for dinner, I had a tossed salad with an oil dressing. And I had a salmon steak and some Brussels sprouts cooked in butter. <laughs> There's nothing in that meal that should have blood, spiked blood sugar like that. That's really odd. That's, that's and you know what? And that's a typical dinner for me. Yeah, and that's an excellent dinner. I mean, for somebody with blood sugar control, I couldn't design a better meal. I mean, that is an outstanding way for you to be eating, and it shouldn't spike blood sugar. Um we may have an adrenal issue going on. The, the adrenals are also pretty critical when it comes to blood sugar. And when we see just weird kind of anomalies like this that, that don't make sense, it's usually an adrenal issue. Um, so we're going to need okay. to dig a little deep. Have, have you taken, I, I have to ask this because we have so many, we're still trying to catch up on them all. Have you taken our free NutriQ assessment? Yes, I did one on December 19th, and then I okay. did a follow-up one um, just the other day. Um, Got it. I think it was okay. The third. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you back on hold, and I'm going to have Bridget get some information so that I can go in and find those and look at them. And then we can get you back on the air or, you know, we'll do an email or something. Be, I need to see what else is going on. I, I, my guess is you probably scored very high on adrenals and possibly thyroid. And we may have to address yes, your I blood did. sugar. If, oh, okay. All right. So then I probably don't need to go look at it then if you already know that. We would want to start working on supporting your adrenals. So we would want you to keep eating okay. exactly the way you're. Don't, don't change the way you're eating because that's fantastic. Um, you're eating salads, you're eating the fish, you're eating good fats. Nothing in there to spike blood sugar. There's plenty of nutrition. You know, it, it's not like you're just eating bacon and butter, 
which some people do on a ketogenic right. diet. And there's not a lot of nutrition. You're getting nutrition. So we're going to have to go in and, and look at what else. Here's what I would recommend. Um, some adrenal support through supplements. And I would also look heavily at lifestyle. You know, w- would you describe yourself as somebody who kind of worries a lot? <laughs> uh, that's putting it mildly, yes. There's your, there's, there is going to be your biggest issue right there. Stress, anxiety, worry, those kind of things are really hard on our adrenals. It, it puts us in that fight or flight mode constantly. And here's what happens. So remember why we go into a fight or flight mode. Historically, it was to save our life. You're walking you know, down the right. savannah and a saber tiger jumps out and you go into the fight or flight mode. Well, remember, what we need right right there is energy. So your body will produce glucose. It will take protein. It will take anything it can find, and it will start producing blood sugar. You didn't have to eat it. Your body will find a way to make it because we need that energy in that mode. And if you're in that mode all the time, it's just it's really hard on your adrenal system. Your hormones get out of whack. And that's where your blood sugar yeah. issues are coming. So I, I don't have any more time. We, we make back. But what I would recommend right now would be look at things like meditation, yoga, hypnotherapy, relaxation techniques. Um, if, if you are drinking caffeine, I would stop it for now. Um, go, go with a decaf or some other beverage that doesn't have caffeine because caffeine's hard on the adrenals and it makes you more anxious. Um, we're going to work on this because I, I want to follow up on this, but I'm all out of time now. So we'll see you next time. Be safe, be profitable, fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. Thanks for tuning in to The Audio Road. If you have any questions, give us a call at 855-800-FUEL. That's 855-800-3835. Check out the website at letstruck.com and find us on facebook.com slash letstruck.